0: A warm welcome to all our listeners. This is the fourth episode of Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State, and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence, and reconciliation. My name is Rufia toth Bíró, I'm a researcher at the Danube Institute. Our special guest today is Juliana Taimorazi, is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, a leading international advocate, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, speaker and writer Advising Awareness of Persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Let me introduce my colleagues, Lydia Pop, researcher at the Danube Institute, and last but not least, Sharon Sugar researcher at the Danube Institute. My first question would be, um, could you tell us about your background? Uh, like, how did you end up in the U.S. fighting for the rights of persecuted Christians?
1: Absolutely, it's such an honor to be with you. I'm grateful to the Danube Institute and all of you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, I was born and raised in Iran and uh, as a Christian and ethnically as an Assyrian, um, we faced harsh treatment uh, with the fall of Shah in 1979. Everything changed for us minorities, uh, but prior to the fall of uh, the King, uh, we had everything. We had a religious freedom. We had the right to worship freely without being spied upon. Uh, But after the fall, everything changed. We had to cover our hair. We couldn't uh, do the act of the cross in public. We couldn't pray publicly. And until this day, really, there are spies in the churches uh, monitoring what comes from the pulpit or um, they read the bulletin before it's printed and shared. So uh, in 1989, my father decided to smuggle me out of Iran and uh, he paid $25,000 to a smuggler to bring me to Switzerland. That's where I stayed in a monastery for a week, and then he took me, again, the smuggler, to Germany, where we sought religious asylum. Um, But it wasn't that easy. I mean, I talk about it so easily that I was smuggled, Um, but really it was a lengthy process. It took about a year to find the the right smuggler who had the right intentions, who would stand by his word. Um, there was um what what a lot of my listeners or my readership uh, finds interesting is that uh, uh, the what the way we were treated by smugglers. So, for example, one of them said that uh, he would marry me, destroy my Christian paperwork. he would convert me officially to Islam, and he would fly me to Germany, where my brother had been smuggled the year before. Uh, and he would uh, give me to my brother. But uh, when my family asked him if you would divorce, if he would divorce me because he officially is married to me, he said, "If I like her, I won't. I will keep her. She's officially my wife." I was fifteen years old. Um, another set of smugglers said they would put me next to real sheep, uh, ship me in the back of a truck next to real animals, and um, uh, they would clothe me sheep clothing sheepskin, put me next to a real sheep, take me to India, buy a car, buy a truck. And then from there they would fly me to Germany. So we went through a series of smugglers until we found the man who uh, created a fake seminar uh, for us to attend, for my mo- mother really to attend. And uh, this is how we ended up leaving uh, Iran and uh, came here 32 years ago in 1990. Um, I'm able to do this work because of the freedom that I have in the United States. Uh, my people, the Assyrian people, have suffered tremendously since we converted to Christianity through Saint Thomas the Apostle two thousand years ago. Uh,
0: you mentioned uh, some of the issues and the, the situations that happened to you as a Christian in Iran, but um, how did uh, like um, have you ever experienced real aggression or discrimination because of your faith, like? At your school, for example?
1: Absolutely. Um, there was a teacher. Um, you know, in the morning, usually students line up for morning prayer, the Islamic morning prayer, before we go inside. And from time to time, uh, some of the teachers and some of the students would um, try to force me to convert to Islam by reciting the Quranic verse, which automatically converts people to Islam. And I would refuse to do so, Um, or they would mock me. Uh, My schoolmates would mock me if I, uh, with my accent, because I have an accent in Farsi, um, and uh, they would say, you're a dirty Christian. Uh, The one uh, incident that really stands in my mind is when repeatedly, um, it was not a one-time incident, but repeatedly, this particular class, in this particular class, I would be uh, debated by the teacher when I was 13 years old. Uh, about the Holy Trinity, about the divinity of Christ. And uh, she would throw me out of class over and over again. Um, my family, my parents went to the school administration, went to the, uh, the Ministry of Education and complained as a minority, official minority in Iran that their child was being abused and bullied for her faith. Nothing happened. In fact, I have a friend of mine now who is in uh, San Jose in California whose uh, sister died because of her constant imbalance of her diabetes uh, because of the level of stress that was inflicted on her as well along the same lines, um, trying to convert them to Islam or mocking them for their Christian faith by the teachers. And she passed away in Iran um, a few years back, quite a few years back. So um, that's something that happened to me. Uh, I remember another incident I was um, six years old but I remember it so vividly when uh, the king left the protesters began chanting on the street um, bringing flowers and celebrating the fall of Shah and my mother began to cry we were my mother and I were standing outside by our door and this one man came grabbed my mother with her neck pinned her to the wall and said Um, you dirty Christian your father is gone see what we will do to you now so that is those are some things that and there's many many more stories but those are the prominent ones that I, I can easily talk about
2: so we can see that the topic of Christian persecution or discrimination is quite understudied in not just the mainstream media but in the academic world as well and it is one of the reasons why we at the Danube Institute started a research titled Ethics on Christian Communities and Institutions, in which we are going to do fieldwork in 10 countries, including Iraq as well. Could you tell us about the current situation of Christians living in Iraq?
1: You know, with the Christians of Iraq, who are the Assyrians, also known as Chaldean and Syriac, uh, representing Nineveh, if you recall from ancient, from the Old Testament, from the Torah about the, about Nineveh. So we are the children of the land. And before the invasion of Iraq by the U.S., we were uh, one and a half million people there. Today, there's a 90% drop. We only have about 150,000 people left. And their living condition is very, very difficult from an economic perspective, which is the entire country's plagued with that not just Christians, but there are very serious um, discrimination that happens that goes absolutely unnoticed. So for example, if a uh, within the constitution of Iraq, if a father uh, or a mother, a parent converts to Islam, the children automatically are converted to Islam. They are automatically considered Islam, Muslim. Um, and that is something that strips away uh, the family from um, religious freedom. Um, in fact, there is a woman in uh, northern Iraq whose um, husband converted to Islam, married a Muslim woman, and now she's being harassed severely. Uh, she escaped uh, southern uh, Iraq uh, to the north, um, and his family, her family, the wife, the new wife's family, uh, are uh, harassing her, wanting to take the children away. We've brought this up to different organizations throughout the world, but really nothing is being done to assist this woman. Uh, there's another discrimin- discriminatory law. Um, it's an election law, where uh, anybody of any faith can vote for a Christian seat. Because in Baghdad we have five seats that belong to the Christians. What that does is when uh, a Shiite Muslim, for example, or or, a, or Sunni Muslim vote for the men that or women that they want to represent Christians in the uh, parliament, uh, that takes away votes from the very few of us that are left in Iraq. Um, we've seen this happen. Uh, there have been a few uh, candidates that have been backed by Iran because we know Iran is heavily inf- has infiltrated Iraq. And those people have won the seats, and they're not really advocating for the Christian community. Um, they're really satisfying the Iranian agenda. So uh, that is from, there, there are many other issues that are plagued, that Christians are plagued with. The other thing that um, sometimes people, media talks about it, but not enough is the rise of the Islamic State. They don't call it ISIS anymore. They're just simply calling it Islamic State. And um, at this time, um, they are um, uh, harassing and persecuting their own people in different parts of Iraq. Uh, God forbid, God forbid, but it's just a matter of time when we will be attacked again. And we're absolutely defenseless. We don't have an army that protects us because the Kurdish army, Peshmerga, and the Iraqi uh, army in 2014, both betrayed the Christians in the Nineveh Plain. And Nineveh Plain is a 1200 square mile area um, that was heavily populated by Christians. Um, so that's uh, that's something because we're vulnerable Um, we are fearing the worst if another persecution starts. Just one last point I'd like to make. Um, Another very serious issue that we're faced with is land grab. Land grab by, um, in the north, unfortunately, by the uh, Kurdish factions, different Kurdish factions, uh, they by force uh, take the lands of the Christians in the north. And also the Shabaks, Shabaks are it's, um, they're Shiites that came to Iraq about 300 years ago. And with the flight of Christians from the Nineveh Plain, from the different towns of the Nineveh Plain, the Shabaks found the opportunity to increase their numbers. So there has been a serious demographic change that has happened in the Nineveh Plain. And they come and they just simply take over the houses that have been left empty by the Christians. And uh, there's no removing them once they're in. There's no removing them. So this is how we lose our land, our homes, our farms. Um, Those are some things that have not been discussed publicly as much. So I would really recommend your institute to really look into that. And I can provide you with some uh, real resources from the ground.
2: As we have already mentioned, you are the founder and uh, president of uh, the Iraqi
1: Christian Relief Council. Um, Could you please tell us about the council's work? certainly. Um, I founded Iraqi Christian Relief Council in 2007. It's going to be 15 years of service uh, this July. Um, I had attended a uh, mass with Cardinal, the late Cardinal Francis George, and after mass I approached him. Uh, This was in 2007, um, early summer, uh, because this was the height of persecution of Christians under Al-Qaeda and Islamic State of Iraq, ISI. And I asked him what is the Vatican doing to help the persecuted church. And he requested he and his chancellor uh, requested for me to go and have a meeting with them. And uh, that's where, in fact, I went with a page full of bullet points, four main bullet points actually, of what the Vatican can do to help the persecuted Christians. And They smiled gently and they let me down gently. They said, well, we're not going to really communicate this to the Vatican, but what we recommend for you to do is to start um, an apostolate, a ministry that raises awareness among Americans and others about who your people are. what What you have suffered and what is it that you're looking for? So I wrote a letter to God that day, that afternoon, because my master's degree is in instructional design. I worked with engineers. I didn't know anything about... Um, nonprofit, the nonprofit world. Um, I had been volunteering for different organizations, but I had never founded an organization. So I wrote a letter to God. It's on our website. If you'd like to look read it, it's uh, under about us. And I asked the Lord to, if this is a calling, if this is what he wants me to do, to give me the, 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 um, uh, the power and uh, to bring me the right people to help me uh, serve him and his children. And that was 15 years ago. So our mission is to raise awareness, ask for prayers and ask for funding to deliver them to those who are in need. We first focused on Iraq because of the crisis that was happening in 2007. But then we uh, quickly understood that there is a massive number of refugees that are living in Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan. So we expanded our efforts there and also those who were coming to the United States. So we have been serving uh, in a, uh, we've. If I may say humbly, um, we have been able to affect hundreds of thousands of lives um, directly by providing food, um, shelter, medication, heart surgeries, um, physical therapy, cancer treatment, uh, providing education. Um, After ISIS was dismantled in 2016, we began repairing their homes, uh, helping them return or resettle again starting small businesses such as falafel uh, shops, uh, mechanic shops, uh, barber shops for them. Um, In fact, in Nineveh Plain, we started uh, through Knights of Columbus with partnership with Knights of Columbus, we started a very big music school. And that was a a form of therapy also for students, for young people. Um, In in terms of the refugee, refugees, I'm in the region often and um, We have a big program called I Adopt a Refugee. And with that, on a monthly basis, we provide them with assistance where they can live dignified lives in refugee settings until they get resettled. In Iraq, our program is called Operation Return to Nineveh. Nineveh, what Jerusalem is to the Jews, Nineveh is for us Assyrians, Chaldeans, and Syriacs. It's a very important geographic location, a city. And for us, we want to empower those who have stayed behind or those who choose to return. We're standing with them um, to the best of our ability.
0: You have connections with people on the ground. Uh, How hard is it uh, to keep in touch with them, uh, communicate with them on a daily basis? And does it mean any danger to them to work with you?
1: I hope not, (laughs) I hope not. Um, I'm in touch with them often. I'm in touch with the partners that I have in the Middle East, including in Iraq. Um, also we do, um, I, I'm because I'm on the front lines, I'm in touch with the refugees. I'm in touch with individuals that are in Iraq uh, living, not necessarily as a part of an organization, but individuals. Um, you know, somebody said to me, a missionary once said to me, how is it that you are unable to detach yourself from their pain or from their struggle? And I said to them, I think, it, I think it's a multi-layered answer that I have to give. One, I belong to a family that has given eight martyrs in the name of Christ in Iran. My great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, my great-aunts, my great-uncles. My great-uncle, one of them was cut into pieces, sent to a, a, his wife in a rice bag. My great-grandmother in 1919 in Ormia in northwestern Iran was burnt alive by the Turks during the Armenian Assyrian Greek genocide. So, number one, I belong to that family. Uh, Number two, I'm a former uh, refugee myself, so I understand the refugee struggle. Um, Three, these are my people. They're from my nation, they're my kin. And if I don't make their pain mine, I will never be able to serve them with all of my might, with all of my soul. And, you know, it is a calling. if I may um, talk about the Old Testament for a moment, um, Abraham was called three times by name. Uh, God called him, the angel called him, and his son called him. And every time he said, here I am, in Hebrew, it's Hinei. In my language, is in Aramaic, is Anaha. And that's what I have done. I feel that the Lord called and I answered Hinei.
2: So besides uh, helping the Iraqi Christians, you uh, spent much time in building relationship between Middle Eastern Christians and the Jewish communities as well. You are leading the effort among the Assyrians in America to fight against anti-Semitism in different communities. Why do you find it important to deal with that issue as well and to connect the both issues you are dealing with?
1: Uh, that also has a long answer. Uh, in Iran, growing up, um, we were forced to hate the United States and also Israel. But at home, my father taught me to love the state, to love the Jewish people because we are both Semitic people. Um, we both, uh, our root language is Aramaic, and they suffered pretty much what we have suffered or in in a, in a very large scale and in a different way, but the suffering has been very similar. And we have been they, as they returned home to their land, uh, we also want to return to Nineveh, to our homeland. So there are many similarities. But, you know, uh, I am someone that whose heart beats for humanity, and I'm against discrimination of any form. I cannot remain silent in the face of discrimination against the Jews, against the Uyghurs in China, against the Christians in Nigeria against the Afghan Christians or even Afghan Muslims that have suffered tremendously um, for the last few decades. Um, if I'm not standing with them, then I have I should not have any expectation of them standing with me. So for me, uh, fighting for um, the Jewish cause, fighting anti-Semitism is natural. Um, I consider them uh, kin to my people um, and the world serves uh, a lot of the world serves them unjustly. And uh, those of us who can't speak up, we have to speak up against that discrimination against the Jewish people. Um, when I was mocked for wearing a cross or when I was not able to practice my faith openly, uh, when a man, a young man gets beat up because of his yamaka, yamaka in, in the college, it reminds me of my own plight. So of course, I'm going to stand with them. And one more thing, you know when ISIS uh, attacked Mosul, um, they put the Arabic letter N, if you recall, uh, noon, um, which stands for Nazarene, uh, as we follow Jesus of Nazareth for those who don't know, uh, when they marked Christian homes with the Arabic letter N, um, it was their neighbors that gave them up, because when someone comes from outside, they don't know where Christians live, but the neighborhood the neighbors gave up the Christians, they betrayed the Christians. And when I see swastika being placed on different stores or different homes or different um, synagogues, that reminds me also of the Arabic letter N that was marked, uh, that the homes were marked. And uh, a few years back, a couple of years ago, in Beverly Hills, uh, there was a Torah that was desecrated uh, in Beverly Hills. And I had to issue a statement under Assyrians against anti-Semitism initiative because that reminded me of when our bibles were burnt by the islamic state by radical muslims so for me there's so many similarities and i will stand with them uh to the best of my ability
2: do you think that the process of christian communities disappearing from
1: um, the middle east can be stopped or there is
2: no turning back
1: unless you know somebody told me from congress from the u.s congress um someone who has fought most of his life for religious freedom. Uh, He gave me a wake-up call back in 2015. Um, He's a congressman, he was a congressman. He said, "Um, your people are dispensable people. You do not hold any value for US foreign policy. And until you figure out how to become indispensable, we're not going to pay much attention to you. We'll just pay you lip service. He said it from the point of love, of tough love, right? Waking me up that, because for centuries, for over a century, we've looked at the West. We've looked at England. England betrayed us in 1914 through 1923. Uh, the US has betrayed us um, at this time. The US policy, not the, US, not the United States people. The American people are the most benevolent, the most kind people. Uh, uh, you know, along with your Hungarian people, uh, along with the Polish people, because you all have risen truly to help the uh, persecuted Christians. And I honor your country, Hungary, so much, truly. I'm so grateful to you. Uh, but in what we're speaking of the U.S. policy, right? So the U.S. policy has really betrayed us. Um, if people like your um, lawmakers, your... Um, your good Hungarian people, people who understand the plight of Christians like the Poles do, and others in Europe, If with the United States also, if they do not rise, if you all do not rise, and not just by aid, but by making the right policies to force or to use the leverage that you have in the Middle East, to encourage these governments to Honor in a real way, not lip service, but in a real way through different policies that can be can be implemented in Iraq, in Turkey, in uh, Syria, in Lebanon, in Iran, in Pakistan. Uh, real policies that will um, allow us to exist, coexist as equal citizens of those countries. We, you will see, as you ha- are witnessing, mass exodus from the Middle East. Um, that's one aspect. The other aspect is. Um, there, it has to be a, a two-level approach. It has to be top, uh, top down and from grassroots as well. It's one thing when um, governments speak, for example, the UAE is extremely ta- um, accepting of Christians. Bahrain is extremely accepting of Christians as a government. But we have to also work on educating the masses. And the education cannot come from outside education has to come from within their own governments, their own communities, their own mosques. If America leads, if Hungary leads, if Poland leads, we will be looked upon as crusaders. Here, the crusaders come, they're trying to inflict their ways on us. But if that, not tolerance, but acceptance, that education starts happening on the ground from within, ground up, and also policies are made from um, from the top, I think there might we might stand a chance. Um, Otherwise, I don't think we will be we will have any more than one and a half percent left in the Middle East. That's that's from a Christian perspective. I will not do this podcast justice if I don't talk about the ethnic aspect as well. So, to me, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not just a mere Christian. Ethnically, I'm an Assyrian. As an Assyrian, as someone who speaks Aramaic still, still. I'm looking at my nation, and I'm seeing that we are on the verge of extinction, from two perspectives. In the East, we're being killed. In the West, we're being assimilated. My nieces speak Assyrian, um, thankfully. but will their children will their children speak Assyrian? I don't know. So there is a real serious loss of a beautiful 6,6,700-year-old 6,000, heritage that is on the verge of extinction i and i implore you not to look at a lot of us just as mere christians but we also are an ethnic group that is that is dying and within the next 100 years if this continues uh we will not survive not in the middle east and not in the west
2: and uh, what is your opinion is there anything that the u.n or ngos were leaders and ordinary people could do to prevent it from happening?
1: The United Nations, unfortunately, um, has failed much of the world. Um, and it's such a t- gigantic organization. Working with them is like turning the Titanic. Um, most likely nothing will happen. Um, but smaller NGOs, think tanks, um, uh, even, even uh, when um, Americans speak up, because still, until now at least, America moves American people move Washington, not the other way around. So what my ministry has done is has been able to mobilize different several churches, several parishioners uh, to understand our cause and really to rise up to speak up uh, to their state representatives. So I would encourage um, there has to be a level of education that is given to the people because we if you know, th- this podcast is extremely important. The program you've begun at the Institute to do this very serious research is extremely important, and I support you 100 percent, and I thank you for that. Um, we must educate people. If I, as an advocate, don't give tools, tangible tools to people, to be able to utilize, one to get educated, two to rise up and help, people are not going to know what to do. This is the first level. Educating is the first level. Asking for prayers is the second level. But the third, we have to give them something, to ten- something tangible to do. Um, that's the only way that uh, I think we can succeed in this endeavor, which is very challenging. You know, For me in the United States, um, uh, Iraq is, everyone wants to forget Iraq. We lost many, countless, over 3000 service members. Their blood was shed in Iraq. And then we had delivered it to ISIS in 2011 when we withdrew our troops. Um, so for us in America, it's very difficult to engage Christians and others to care about Iraq and our numbers have dwindled. Um, so people ask me, so why don't you just leave? Why don't you just leave and come to the West and we you will be Christians as you know freely as Christians. Um, that's true, but there's a level of, the loss of heritage, the loss of our land um, and economic loss for families and cultural clashes. There's some cultural clashes that have happened between children and their parents. Parents come from the old world uh, with their very conservative values and then children grow up in the West with different values. So there's that clash as well. It's so multi-layered that I think we can talk for a whole day about all the challenges. Uh, But I believe that we must hope amidst um, hopelessness we have to keep uh, faith and we have to hope otherwise without hope um, there's really nothing that matters
2: so as an ending question I would like to ask you that what do you think we could learn as Christians and as people who care about human rights from the persecuted Christians
1: so what I've noticed with through my uh, travels in the Middle East um, their faith is so strong Uh, When I speak to them, when we bring aid to them, for example, the first thing uh, from their lips is, thanks be to God. Or if they've given a martyr, they say, we thank God for everything. This was his will. I mean, it's quite emotional to hear this from those who have suffered tremendously for their faith. Um, I remember I was in Jordan in 2015. We had brought aid to the refugees. And um, it it was my first time seeing refugees firsthand um, because we had been serving them since 2008, but it was always long distance. So finally, when I met them in 2015, um, it was so shocking. It was so heartbreaking um, uh, that I, I excused myself from the group and I began to sob. So this one woman came and she said, uh, why are you crying? And I said, one, I feel like we, we and myself have failed you. Two, um, I, I just feel terrible for your situation. You've lost everything. And now you're here begging practically. And she said, don't you know that we potentially, she said, we could be a part of a bigger plan that God has to show his love, Christ's love and mercy to those perpetrators that invites them to come to our beautiful faith. And I was shocked and she left. She told me this and she disappeared. I don't know who she is. I don't know her name. I've never seen her in pictures again. I've been to Jordan so many times. I never saw her again. So I don't know who she is, Um, but that statement shook me. And the other thing that they say is, how do you want us to pray for you in the West? Because you call us cultural Christians and yet we have lost everything. Many of us were crucified. At our doorstep, or four of us outside Iraq, outside Baghdad in 2014. Um, how do you want us to pray for you when persecution comes for you? Uh, the the last thing I'll say is, these are the most dignified people. Despite losing everything, despite their sorrow, they're so such dignified people that. It's, it's an honor to serve them. It's an honor to be with them and standing with them shoulder to shoulder To You know, when you go there, they have nothing, but they'll give you a bottle of water, their last bottle of water. Um, and this, this, this is the spirit of Middle East Christians.
0: Thank you so much for your time and answering our questions.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for this fantastic opportunity. Um, I pray that your research program will succeed and I cannot wait to meet you in September. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Stay tuned for the upcoming podcasts featuring distinguished guests from Hungary and the world. Goodbye.